0: Welcome to Heartbeat of Humanity, a podcast series for staff and volunteers in the Red Cross Red Crescent Movement working with mental health and psychosocial support services. My name is Jesper Gugle and I'm a communications officer working for the IFSC Psychosocial Center. This particular episode of Heartbeat of Humanity was funded by the European Union. However, its content are the sole responsibility of the IFRC Psychosocial Center and do not necessarily reflect the views of the European Union. Almost 8 million people have fled Ukraine since the beginning of the conflict and another estimated 8 million people have been displaced within the country. According to WHO, one in five people are affected by mental health disorders in post-conflict settings. If left without treatment and adequate support, people from Ukraine face long-lasting effects that could harm themselves, their families and their communities. In an initiative to meet this massive need, Red Cross National Societies in the Czech Republic, Hungary, Poland, Romania and Slovakia have joined forces to offer mental health and psychosocial support services to more than 300,000 people from Ukraine. The project is funded by the European Union with technical assistance from the IFSC and the IFSC Psychosocial Center. The project connects vulnerable people with mental health professionals and volunteers from the five national societies. Last year, Sarah Harrison, head of the MSPSS Technical Unit in the Psychosocial Center, traveled to Ukraine to assess the mental health needs of people living inside the country. I invited her to talk about the visit and I started by asking her to explain in more detail the purpose of going to Ukraine.
1: So I went to Ukraine in uh, November this year, so just um, about six or seven weeks ago. And I was there as um, doing an assessment, actually, a mental health and psychosocial support assessment. And it's part of a bigger EU for health program. Um, we'd done the same assessments, actually, in five of the other countries hosting Ukrainian refugees that had left the country earlier on in the summer. And now we were doing the assessment in Ukraine. And the assessment was looking at three things. It was looking at um, some packages, some training packages on psychological first aid that could be used by social workers and teachers and also by the volunteers from Ukrainian Red Cross. I was looking at the staff welfare and the caring for volunteers set up within the National Society and some of the stresses, And then thirdly, I was looking at the coordination mechanisms inside the country in collaboration with different organizations and within a municipality or an oblast, to use the Ukrainian term, um, and also at the more humanitarian interagency level as well.
0: And so, how do you prepare for uh, mental health and psychosocial support assessment?
1: So it requires quite a lot of preparation work even before you travel. So because we had done similar assessments um, for the five countries around Ukraine that had been hosting Ukrainians, we had some questions that we could use. But those questions were very much tailored for refugee-based populations. So looking a lot more at integration inside, say, Slovakia or another country hosting Ukrainians. And there were lots of questions on cultural adaptation, differences between host community and Um, Ukrainians as a refugee population. Those questions weren't necessary in Ukraine because we were inside the country and it was Ukrainians supporting Ukrainians in effect. So um, we actually used um, some of the questions, but then we modified them. And we're very fortunate in the fact that at the Psychosocial Center, we have a staff member who comes from Ukraine herself um, and has had a background providing mental health and psychosocial support services in Ukraine. So we sat down with her and we redrafted a lot of the questions, reformulated them. Um, and then we also had to get them translated into Ukrainian um, so that they could then be, be used um, when I was out there and back translated. Um, and on top of that, um, we had the questions based upon the three different sections. So looking at questions for social workers and for teachers and for Ukrainian volunteers and staff on psychological first aid. And then also questions for caring for staff and volunteers that went out in a survey electronically. Um, and then again, questions looking more at coordination that I could ask to like my counterpart in different agencies um, that were working there. The other thing about the questions is the ones that we had originally for countries hosting refugees that we did in the summer. Um, those questions were also tailored very much where refugees had a st- relatively stable, safe environment. They were in countries like Slovakia, Romania, Hungary, where they weren't still under um, active conflict zones or they weren't still having to flee. Um, for their lives. Whereas inside Ukraine, it's still a hugely fluid situation when I was there in November. So a lot of the questions that you could ask about issues to do with safety and security had a very different meaning than when you're asking that question to someone that's, that's fled as a refugee to a third country and is relatively settled. Um, so it's quite a bit of adaptation in the questions. And then all of the questions were put into Kobo, um, which is a software that's freely available that um, IFRC uses quite a lot. Um, and it's just a software that enables you to type in the questions, build your own checklists or questionnaires. And then you can fill in that information in real time. If you've got um, an Internet connection, when you're asking people, you can directly write into the, the questionnaires or checklists. And um, you can also work offline. And you can do it on a tablet or a mobile phone. And then as soon as you get internet connection, you can just upload it in the cloud. And it meant that whilst I was doing the assessment here in, um, sorry, I was doing the assessment in Ukraine, staff that were still in Copenhagen supporting data analysis type stuff um, could also get the information almost in real time because I could upload it in the evenings when I had internet connection again. So it just makes the getting the results and doing something with the information a bit more immediate than if you just have to wait for an assessment report to come out, as well. And it also meant that because I was moving around different parts of Ukraine, so I did the assessment in Chernivtsi or just outside of Chernivtsi, which is a town just across the border from Romania but inside Ukraine. And I also did it inside um, Kiev city, but also in Hosta and um, and Irpin, um, which are just outside of of Kiev. Um, and those locations were chosen. They're um, they're in the Kiev Oblast or Kiev municipality or Komuna. Um Those locations were chosen by the assessment team um, because they had uh, they'd been disproportionately affected actually by the conflict, particularly earlier on in February and March um, when the, the the international conflict exacerbated, um, and they were accessible from. Reasonably accessible from Kiev as well. So that was from our side. But secondly, in terms of preparing for an assessment, there's also a massive amount of work that the in country team does, if I can say that. So, Ukrainian Red Cross, but also Danish Red Cross that was helping us in this same project and are also doing mental health and psychosocial support work in Ukraine. And their responsibility was very much organizing. A lot of meetings for me. So I met a lot of people, but organising small focus group discussions, for example, with a group of social workers or with a group of teachers. Um, organizing focus group discussions with volunteers or one-to-one meetings. Um, or, and I, so I turned up in Ukraine and I basically had this wonderful full assessment plan that Ukrainian Red Cross had organized with Danish Red Cross support. And I could then literally just turn up and ask the questions. So I couldn't have done the assessment without them doing that work because I don't know the social workers I don't know the teachers that I need to speak to or even the volunteers so they organized all the logistics stuff and organized all the cars and the translator that I also had from IFRT supporting me as well and all of that was done before I before my trip so it was quite a bit of preparation before you even start asking questions.
0: So while you were in Ukraine um, doing the assessment who did you meet and what were your findings?
1: Yeah, so I met in um, inside Kiev City. I met a lot of the IFRC staff um, and Ukrainian Red Cross staff, their senior management, but also um, staff involved in the mental health and psychosocial support program in Ukraine. So the head of that program um, and some of her team. I also spoke with Danish Red Cross because they're doing a lot of support for Ukrainian Red Cross in Ukraine on a variety of areas, but particularly on mental health and psychosocial support. And then um I also met um human resources from Ukrainian Red Cross as well for, to get the staff welfare component and population wise, if I can say that um I met with social workers in Hostomel um Irpin and Bucha um and different agencies, um, MDM, Médecins du Monde, who were supported on a UNICEF-funded project, um, who were working alongside a local partner in a local Ukrainian Red Cross branch to provide services. Um, And then I also met teachers at the... um, Yeah, the teachers were also in the focus group discussion in in Hostomel and Irpin, And then in Chernivtsi, I was actually visiting a, it's a shelter actually, and the shelter's purpose had changed during the conflict. So before the conflict started and even before 2014, it was a shelter that was receiving um, women who were survivors of domestic violence or some form of abuse, usually with their children. And it had also taken in some um, people that were living with disabilities as well, all types of disabilities. And then during the conflict, it became this shelter, actually. And it's a larger building where there's multiple displaced people that live. And it's got a huge amount of wraparound services. It's got social workers there. It's got a psychiatrist. It's got a clinic, a medical clinic. And it's literally run like a very, very big shelter um, with with people living in dormitories. And there were Ukrainians from all over Ukraine that had ended up in Chernivsi and managed to find their way to this place and to stay there. Um, and then I also interviewed the Ukrainian volunteers that were do- providing activities in the shelter or around the shelter. And that was in Chernivsi. And in terms of findings, what we find from the, I can say from the teacher's side, all of the teaching is pretty much online now in Ukraine for children. And they had done that during the COVID time anyway, Um, but now it had become um, like de facto a reality. And that's because whilst not every school was damaged in Ukraine, um, they have a frequent number of air raid sirens that happen every day. And the capacity of the shelters like the the bomb shelters or the secure shelters determines the capacity of children that can go to the school so they can only take so many children that can actually if the air raid siren go can actually go down and stay in a bomb shelter and that number's quite restricted we're not talking about hundreds of children that can stay so it meant that a lot of the schools were actually closed because they couldn't guarantee the safety of the children during the school day if there was an air raid siren so lessons were moved online and it also then meant that children were very much missing out on a lot of social interactions because all of their classes were online. And even in November, there was um, power cuts, power outages, and particularly in Hostomel and Earpin because the infrastructure had been so badly damaged from February and March time. So in effect, if you don't have internet, you don't have electricity and you're asking to attend an online class as a child, you then effectively are not really learning. Um, we found that um, displaced Ukrainians that had moved to a new area, so there were a lot from Kharkiv and the eastern part Donetsk that had moved to Kiev and and to Chernivtsi. Those that were able to volunteer or actually do something meaningful within the response were actually doing better than those that hadn't managed to to settle and get integrated into new communities. And Ukraine is is a vast country; it's absolutely massive. Um, it's multiple European countries. Um, mixed into one size-wise. And that meant that um, if you're from Kharkiv, you're like 15, 20 hours driving away from a new location that you're being moved to. So it that new location is just as foreign to you as, as almost moving to another country in some respects, even if the language is the same. So for the social workers were saying that there were families that were... Um, struggling very much in terms of basic needs, and this was actually giving them the additional stress. Um, and families that had managed to integrate, even within the displacement context, and get the children re-registered in school, find an accommodation, were actually doing better than families that, that hadn't been able to stabilise themselves. Um, at the centre in Charnivsi, the shelter I visited, they were reporting that when people used to first arrive, they would be in huge amounts of distress. And when I said, how do people find their way to this place, when I asked the the Ukrainians living there, they said they literally pointed to a finger on a map and said, this is the furthest place from the fighting, from the front line, that we know it's at the end of a train line and we can get ourselves there. So that was literally the decision making process. But there were reports, for example, of of elderly people turning up alone without family members, and really struggling to sleep at night. So walking the corridors at night time, very disoriented, having nightmares as well. And this is when they, they first arrived at the centre. They also reported children bringing a lot of pets with them, so bringing dogs, cats. They had hamsters with them, snakes in some of them as well. And the children would come and they would fiercely hold on to, for example, the cat, the family cat, and the cat would sleep with them and they wouldn't let the cat go. And then when the child was much calmer and more relaxed in the centre, they would then let the pets go and the pets could run around. So the staff said it was a very strong indication of how well the child was doing when if they were able to heal and settle a bit, then they were more confident on letting the pet go and they were more relaxed and then playing as normal children should. Um, as well, but that took, they said it used to take them around uh, ten days to two weeks in order to settle into their the shelter there as well. And then in terms of staff, what I found is that for the staff and volunteers, um, I think they're not they're not as concerned about the increased workload, um, and there has been a massive increase in the workload. Um, they're more concerned about the daily disruptions to their lives so for example the air raid sirens that go off multiple times a day that restrict movement you then have to sit in the shelter or you have to isolate in the office um, and then you can't move which also means you can't pick your children up you can't go home sometimes you could be stuck in a shelter for half an hour you could be stuck in a shelter for six hours so there's just a lot of daily disruptions and the air raid sirens also happen at night time so in just in the 10 days I was there, there wasn't a single night where you didn't have to get up and go down to a bomb shelter. And that means that there's this attrition in terms of your lack of sleep. So the staff are just walking around absolutely exhausted and the volunteers, just simply because they can't get a solid block of sleep during the night. And their day is just so disrupted um, moving around. But in terms of the work that they're doing, all of them said that they were hugely motivated to the type of work that they were doing and found it very meaningful um and not difficult in that respect it, they didn't they weren't exhausted helping people um but they it was just the inf, the the daily infrastructure around it that that was exhausting them as well
0: so you did this assessment in november yeah so what now what what are the next steps
1: yeah, so um, as always a report gets written and gets sent um, and the findings have been reported obviously back with Ukrainian Red Cross and they've also um, been shared with the um, DG Santi, the European Commission, um, in the monthly report that went for November, I believe. Um, and then with those reports, um, a lot of what I was doing there was actually helping Ukrainian Red Cross work out what they're going to do in this in this project that they've got for, for two years and tailoring um, packages, training packages for teachers in particular and training packages for social workers on psychological first aid, um, how they can do it. So, for example, how can you provide PFA to children that you don't see or maybe you see them but they're in a bomb shelter with you for part of the day? What, what type of activities can you do? How can you calm the child down? And the same thing for social workers, And then we are still waiting actually for the results from the Caring for Volunteers and the Staff Welfare Survey. But when those results come out, they will be used to create a a stronger, if I can say that, support system for volunteers and staff, particularly where the staff members can, all of them in Ukraine had access to a staff psychologist and some of them are actually using that person that's available at the end of a phone line. Um, and the same for volunteers but what we were looking for is creating more of volunteer support systems peer support systems um, and the assessment results will be able to find out some of the stresses that the volunteers are facing and how to build those systems so should it be done at the oblast level or at the branch level and how to build that system basically within the within the national society. Um, and it's broadly part of the national society development um, that the Ukrainian Red Cross is very much focused on moving, moving ahead. So we're hoping that this project and the results from it will feed into this bigger national society development approach that they're taking. Um, and then also being able to disseminate the results within the humanitarian community. In Ukraine, there's a lot of agencies in Ukraine working because I think that the assessment findings will be equally useful for them, but also externally or regionally within the Europe region where there's a lot of countries also hosting Ukrainians as well.
0: So you've done similar assessments um, around the world?
1: Yeah.
0: How does the conflict in Ukraine differ from other conflicts um, where you have done similar MSPSS assessments?
1: Yeah. I think the um the well yeah the conflict in Ukraine has got a lot more international attention than other conflicts where I have worked in and I think for for Ukrainians I think that actually makes it f- they feel supported externally by international community if I can use that term. Um and I think that solidarity actually um really helps them it keeps them motivated um, helps them work from a from a kind of humanitarian actor perspective as as me going out there it's the first conflict I've worked in where you you're highly connected on a mobile phone so for example there's an app that you download to get the air raid sirens so there is a siren that goes out in all of the cities sounds a little bit like a fire alarm, but if you're not in a city, if you're travelling in a car or you're between cities, then it's literally an alarm that comes off on your phone very loudly that tells you that it's the air raid siren. And there's also an app that tells you where the bomb shelters are. And then you literally move around the city as if you're in a, a normal environment. And then you have to go into a bomb shelter when you hear the alarm. Um, and I've never worked in an environment, actually, where I've been so connected to the telephone and the telephone tells you what to do when you receive so much information through it. Um, I'm usually used to having a radio when I go um, and the very restricted movements, um, and that's not the case there. But it's also because the country is so vast that it's very difficult to completely lock down everything in the country, and we also have to be able to work as well. Um, And I think the coping capacities that you see in Ukrainians are very similar to actually what I've seen in other parts of the world. So this ability to get up every day and to care for their children, to go to work, to find some some form of heating to to heat the house, to get access to water because the water system's not working. um, And to do that every day and to still want to get out of bed, to do that every day is actually quite commendable. And I I do see that in other conflict settings. Um, I've never worked in one that's been so cold. Um, usually I've worked in, in hotter environments where there's been a conflict. Um, and I think the, yeah, so there is an added weather dimension um, that's going to make it very difficult in the months ahead, um, in the same way that extreme heat makes it uncomfortable in other conflict settings um, as well. And I think simply the fact that the country is so big. So you can, I can remember when we were doing this long two-day drive in to get to Kiev, there's... The farmers were in the fields harvesting their crops in November and it was this beautiful autumn colours in the forests for hours that you drive through. And so life, there's a semblance of normality going on in pockets of the country. Um, so the harvesting was going, people markets were all open, um, the borders were exceptionally busy with cross-border trade. Um, so there is this semblance of normality. If you go there, you wouldn't necessarily think that this is also a place where there's an act of conflict going on. And then, as I said, you get there and then you find out that you have to download this app where you're being told where the bomb shelters are and there's air raid sirens and you have to hibernate in the office multiple times a day. So it's this very weird work environment, I think, as well, because you can go to McDonald's, you know, you can go to H&M, you can walk in and out of the shops, you can walk around Kiev. Um, So you almost have freedom in that respect um, if you're working and living there. Um, But at the same time, you have this quite high level of insecurity um, that can happen as well. And in other locations where I've done assessments like this, there's a much stricter security or movement aspect. Um, and you tend to be living in a in a guest house, in a compound, and that's not the case there. The staff are living in, in apartments around the city. Um, and, of course, as Ukrainian staff are as well, they're all commuting to work um, every day as well. So you don't see the... The famous, you know, white Toyota Land Cruisers driving around—that um, doesn't really exist there um, at all, and people aren't in compounds either. So it's that makes it different, uh, different operating environment. But I think in terms of mental health and psychosocial support needs, it's we're all humans. It's fairly similar um, around the globe in terms of needs. It's how you do the response that changes.
0: Anything else you want to share about uh, your assessment trip to to Ukraine?
1: Um, Anything else I would like to share? No, other than to say thank you to Ukrainian Red Cross and also Danish Red Cross and the IFRC in the country for hosting me. Um, Yeah, I think they're doing incredible work under very, very difficult circumstances. Um, So my, my hat's off and I bow my head in respect to you as well.
0: And also thank you to you, Sarah, for telling us about your assessment trip to Ukraine.
1: You're welcome. Thank you for the opportunity.
0: You've been listening to Heartbeat of Humanity, a podcast series for Red Cross, Red Crescent movement staff and volunteers about mental health and psychosocial support. In this episode, I talked to Sarah Harrison, head of the MSPSS technical unit in the Psychosocial Center, about her mental health and psychosocial support assessment in Ukraine. You can find more resources about mental health and psychosocial support on the IFSC Psychosocial Center website. Resources include manuals, webinars, policy documents, program materials, educational videos, and information about upcoming trainings. My name is Jesper Gule, and I hope you enjoyed listening to this Heartbeat of Humanity podcast. Remember that mental health matters.